Luke chapter 22, look at verses 1 through 6. It's a short passage, kind of a passage that's in between um, larger sections. And, and so uh, the kind of passage I think probably would get passed over a lot of times as we, as we, if you were going through the Gospel of Luke, but man, we're going to dive into it and see if we can't squeeze a little bit of juice out of it. So, um, so starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, as we open your word, um, God, we give you thanks for the blessings of your word. Uh, God, we give you thanks for the the message um, that we find there. Um, God, as you speak to us through your word and show us, uh, God, not only your own uh, character, um, not only the way that you have worked throughout history, um, but God, that you have revealed to us your son, Jesus Christ, through the scriptures, that we understand him. Uh, we understand uh, the mission that he was sent for. Uh, we understand the salvation that he has won for us. Uh, God, we understand the calling uh, that is upon our lives as those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and followed him. Father, we each, uh, we, we thank you for this, uh, your word and, and for every church in our community that preaches uh, your word. God, we ask a particular blessing on um, the churches in, in our community that are gospel preaching um, churches, uh, churches that, that uh, God, each week speak from your word, um, not from, from the times and not from uh, current opinion and not from the wisdom of men, God, but they speak your truth from your word each week. We ask that you would use that, that your spirit would use your word to do your work. We know that, that you have told us that your word does not, and when it goes out, it does not return void. And so we ask that you would um, work powerfully through the preaching of your word um, each week, whether that is in a formal context from a pulpit um, or in in small groups, discipleship groups, in classes, um, friends over coffee, God, that your gospel would be spoken um, all across our community. God, help us as we open it um, to, to receive what you would have us receive, that we would be, God, moved by it, that we would be changed by it, that you would use it to uh, draw us closer to yourself. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we come to this uh, section of Scripture, which, by some people's account, begins this section that is called the Passion of the Christ. All right? And so probably many of you are, are familiar with that phrase. Uh, probably those of you who are, uh, are, are not just too young, you remember that there was a Mel Gibson movie um, a few years back called The Passion of the Christ. And that terminology, if you're not familiar with it, um, can be a little bit confusing because the way that word passion is used in that context is not the way we use it today. It's a little more of what you might say an archaic way of using the word passion because that word passion comes from a Latin word that means to suffer. 
or to endure through something. And so when we talk about the passion of the Christ, we're not talking about the zeal of Christ or the energy of Christ. We're talking about the suffering of Christ. And so specifically when someone talks about the passion of Christ, they're referring to the things that he suffered in the last days of his earthly life, the physical things, the emotional things, the spirit, spiritual realities um, that he endured. Now, something that you might notice if you're, if you're reading in like your Bible notes or things like that, a lot of people will start this sort of section that we call the passion of the Christ in the garden of Gethsemane. So we're a little before that. We're not quite, quite there yet. We are um, just before the Lord's Supper evening. So that Thursday night where Gethsemane happens later that evening and into the morning. So we're not quite at that section, but I think there's an argument to be made. Um, to say that the passion of Jesus Christ should start somewhere about right here. And the, and the appropriateness to start it in Luke is for, is for one big reason, is that there, there are lots of evils that Jesus had to suffer through. But one of the main ones, and maybe not one that we necessarily always remember, is his betrayal. All right? The very fact that Jesus was betrayed is something that he suffered through. And so, of course, immediately we think of the other things that he had to go through. But that betrayal is a big part of the passion of Jesus Christ. So, for example, think about the fact that uh, a, a passage we just touched on a couple of weeks ago with the Lessons and Carol service. When we read that passage from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 10, it says this, He was in the world... And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, right? That's, that passage is talking about sort of a dual thing of, of not only the fact that they did not accept him, but the people who even did accept him in, in some cases betrayed him, all right? That's a key thing. If you think about it, every week when we do the Lord's Supper, in the, the liturgy of, of the words that I say before the Lord's Supper, what does it say? It makes a point to say, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, we in, he instituted this supper. That's an interesting thing to think about, by the way. The fact that the night in which the Lord's Supper, th- this incredible symbol of the union and community that is in Jesus Christ, is the same night in which all of his disciples abandoned him. All of them ran away in that moment. That's a, that's a, that's an incredible thing to hold in tension with each other. And so we know probably personally, or at least maybe if we haven't experienced, we can imagine it, that betrayal is probably one of the most difficult human emotions to experience. If you've been tr- betrayed by a family member or a friend, people oftentimes who have been betrayed in serious ways will say, Man, I think it would have been easier to deal with the sudden death of that person more than it would be easy to deal with their betrayal, right? So so Jesus' betrayal is an important aspect of this passion. Man, we are about to enter into that section of Scripture. From now till Easter, we are going to be um, talking about um, that that last uh 24 hours of his life and, and all the events that come along that. So along with the mocking, along with the scourging, the abandonment, and eventually the crucifixion, uh, we talk about the betrayal. 
And so what I want to do tonight, and again, it's sort of a weird passage, right? You could, you could probably read that passage and say, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what the content exactly that we're going to pull out of that. It almost just seems like a connector piece between different stories. Um, but what I want to do with it is, is look at this. And what we notice is that there are a number of, you could say, betrayers that are highlighted in this passage. And we're going to look at each one of those betrayers, kind of look at a little bit of their motivations or potential motivations, and then perhaps maybe we can avoid the same pitfalls, the same temptations that uh, that these groups and individuals um, had to endure. All right. And so, again, we start there at the beginning, verse one. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So we're setting the time. This is kind of like a, a time stamp. We don't know exactly what day this is, but it's somewhere between the Monday of Holy Week and Thursday, probably at lunchtime of Holy Week, right? Somewhere in there. Um, and the first betrayer that we see in this passage, in verse 2, is these chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders. So again, there in verse 2. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. All right, so as we've said many times, of all people, the religious leaders, the ones who are experts in the scripture, should have been the people that recognized Jesus and followed him, right? They should have been the people who, above anybody else, would have known that Jesus was who he said he was. And yet, throughout the scriptures, over and over again, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, all or most hated Jesus. Numerous attempts to trap him in different plots. Pretty much every time they are, are with him, every time they come together. Okay, But this passage marks a particular turn in, in uh, the Gospel of Luke because at this point, they're not just looking to discredit him. They're not just looking to frame him or, or pin some kind of charge on him. They're looking to eliminate Jesus at this point. Now, again, why? Well, something that we've talked about, again, multiple times over the course of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, they are envious of Jesus and of his authority, particularly of his authenticity. The people come to Jesus and see a real man of God. He authentically cares for people and serves people. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests who had been using their religious leadership um, in many cases to use the people, I mean, they're scared of his authority. And we see that specifically. And I want you to turn over there because we're going to spend just a second in this passage. Turn over to John chapter 11, just real quick. The Gospel of John chapter 11, because we see one of pretty much the most blatant statements of the fears of the, of the Pharisees and, and the chief priests. So in John chapter 11, looking down at verse 47, it says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay? Man, it couldn't get much more blatant than that. Okay? The blatant self-interest, they acknowledge the fact that Jesus is doing miraculous things. And they say, they don't then go, well, gee, 
he's doing these miraculous things. Maybe he's actually from God. That's not their reaction. What is their reaction? We've got to get rid of this guy quick because pretty soon everybody is going to be following him. The Pharisees could see the writing on the wall. They were going to be out of a job really soon. And moreover, they're worried there may end up being something even bigger than that. There could be a revolution involved. Their whole nation could be at risk. Everything could be up in the air because of this man, Jesus. Jesus essentially stands in opposition to all of their agendas And for that, they are willing to betray the person who is their king and the person who is their savior. Now, again, we've touched on that idea a bunch of times, right? Pretty much every time we talk about the Pharisees, we're touching on this fact that what's their own agendas, their own motives are in opposition to Jesus. But I want to go in an interesting little way. That's why we jumped over to John, because you see something, a weird thing that I don't think probably most people have often noticed about that. Looking there again in in John chapter 11, starting in verse 49. So, right, they've had this meeting. They're saying, we got to get rid of this guy. We don't know what we're going to do about him. And it says this in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Okay, so think about that. Think about the weird thing that is going on in that story. Caiaphas, who is the high priest, has a prophetic vision or utterance. Okay, he says something to the other priests that is from God that he couldn't have known on his own. Okay, God gives him a particular insight and he utters the fact that Jesus, this man, Jesus, would die to save and to unify the people of God. Okay, but he interprets that prophecy through the lens of his greed and his pride and his self-interest. And so what does he do? He doesn't think of it in terms of, ah, this is the coming Messiah whom we have longed for and is going to forgive the people from their sins. No, instead he says, this guy has to die so that we get to keep our position. And God has told me these things. Okay. The prophecy that God has given him is accurate, but he has misunderstood it because he's seeing it through the lens of his own sin and self-interest. All right. That's a big thing to think about when we think of the ways that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest have betrayed Christ. And something that we need to consider is that we can betray Christ in an interesting, because most of us, I think, would look at this passage and they go, you know what? I would never just blatantly, defiantly, like thumb my nose at Jesus and betray him. But that doesn't seem to be what at least Caiaphas and the high priest are doing. They actually think they are doing what God wants them to do. But they're just doing it through the lens of their own sin. All right. That is a way that we betray Christ sometimes. 
is that we think we are doing the right thing, but it is because we are interpreting what we think God wants us to do, not through his righteousness, but through our sin. So that's something to pay attention to. And there's a, there's a, there's a depth there and, and we could go down the road on a lot of stuff and a lot of different aspects of that. That's just one piece. Um, a unique aspect of the betrayal that comes from the religious leaders. All right. So that's the first one. The religious leaders is betrayers. The second people, and this is sort of tangentially, I'm not sure if that's exactly a word. Um, the second group is that we see that ends up being a betrayer is the Jewish people themselves. Now, we don't see their betrayal in this passage, but we know it's coming. And the Jewish people are a bit of a conundrum for us in their betrayal. Because here's what we have seen as a general picture of the people of Israel in the Gospel of Luke so far. By and large, they typically have a favorable view of Jesus. They appreciate his miracles. They appreciate his teaching. They appreciate his authority. They seem to especially like it when he one-ups the Pharisees, right? They like to see those things. Just days before this event is taking place, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, man, the people were out in force hailing him as the coming king. And here we notice that the religious leader's major motivation for trying to kill Jesus but keeping it secret is why? Because he's popular with the people. They don't want to do this out in the open because they're scared that the people are going to say, hey, if you're going to kill Jesus, then we're going to kill you. So they don't dare attack him in the open for fear of the people's reprisal. Okay, That's what makes the people's response on Good Friday so difficult for us to grasp that when Jesus stands before the crowds at Pilate's palace and Pilate asks them, who should I release to you, Jesus or this man named Barabbas, this murderer, this insurrectionist named Barabbas, the people cry out, give us Barabbas. And then Pilate says, well, then what should I do with Jesus? And the people cry out, crucify him. Okay? This flip in their response to Jesus is hard to make sense of. How could they shift their opinions so quickly? To the point that some Bible commentators will say, there's no way possible that this could be the same people. Right. The followers of Jesus, the people who are glad to see him are probably still at home in bed. The people who were there at Pilate's court are the rabble that the Pharisees have riled up to get to come in there and sort of maybe paid them off. But who knows what, but gotten them to say these things. Okay, and here's the deal. That may be the case. There's no way we can know that. But here's something I think is also the case. We must also never underestimate the power of our expectations being disappointed. The people have a certain kind of Messiah in mind. Jesus is not that kind of Messiah. And it may very well be the case that when he did not behave how they wanted him to, they betrayed and abandoned him. Then they went a step further And went against him. Again, before we get down on these people, we should recognize the danger that is present in our own hearts. 
Because an illness, an accident, the collapse of a marriage, the death of a child, at that point when all of your dreams and expectations come crashing down around you, there is a bitterness towards God that can sneak in. And the intensity of that bitterness can be maybe more than we would expect. It's not the only reason that people betray and abandon Jesus, okay? But man, it's a big one. I think probably the case is, is that we know, all know people who have gone through some sort of traumatic experience in which God didn't show up the way that they had expected him to. And because of that, they have said, I'm walking away from it. I'm walking away from the faith. I'm walking away from the church. Again, is that the only reason people betray? Certainly not, but it's a big one. In that moment that you were let down by Jesus, he didn't provide in the way that you wanted it to. He didn't protect in the way that you thought he should. And then you walk away. So here's three things. Three things to consider about that. One is we need to prepare our hearts ahead of time for those moments, right? We need to prepare our hearts ahead of time for the moment when you get that call in the middle of the night. Now, at one level, you can't. There is no way that you can be prepared for the difficulties that are going to arise. It's impossible to prepare yourself for the unthinkable. Okay. It's, 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 you're not going to be able to do it, but at the very least we can take the edge off of it. Okay. When that thing happens, we can say, I'm not surprised by this. I'm not surprised that things didn't work out the exact way that I thought they were going to work out. I'm not surprised by the fact that God is going to work in ways that wouldn't be the way that I would have chosen for him to work. Two, a better way of preparing our hearts is by enjoying the Lord. By taking so much solace and pleasure and joy in God that the percentage real estate of our brains is taken up by other things, right? And so, man, that is to say, if your job is your life, then losing your job is going to be a huge hit. If your marriage is your life, then losing it is going to destroy your world. And you might say, whoa, 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 Ash, like, shouldn't my marriage be my life in some level? And the answer is, we could go to places in scripture that would say no. Like in Paul's letters, he says, those who are married right now should act like, not act like, but, but live like they are not married. Meaning not to go out and live like a single person, but that your marriage is not the most important thing about your life anymore. The kingdom of God is the most important thing. Okay. We can make idols out of our marriages. If your health is everything, then illness is probably going to derail you. But if Jesus is everything, then I can promise you that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Because Jesus promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. 
And then maybe a third thing, recognize that your perspective, your vision is way too small. That's the message of the book of Job, basically. If you want to take time to go read the whole book of Job tonight, I can summarize it for you real quick. You're small, all right? God's bigger. He's got bigger plans and bigger ideas about things than you have. There is more in God's plans for the world than is dreamt of in your philosophy. So think about if the Jewish people had gotten what they wanted that day, Jesus became king, kicked out the Romans, established a kingdom of peace and justice for all mankind. Every single person in the world would go to hell. Right? If Jesus had just lived and gone about his business and been a king, we would all be without hope because the necessary event for our salvation would have never taken place. The death and resurrection of Jesus would never have happened. And we'd all be up the creek. Events not working out the way you had hoped or planned are not reasons to betray Jesus Christ. And man, here's another thing, and I'm just going to add this in. It's not even my notes, but it's something that I wanted to say and thought I shouldn't, and I'm going to say it anyway, okay? And we were in the middle of this deconstruction movement in the church where there are all these people who are deconstructing their faith. And here's the deal. That's a nice word. What the real word is is betrayal, right? People are walking away from Jesus Christ. They are betraying Jesus Christ, okay? And we like to use these terms about these things like, no, 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 no. they're deconstructing. They're in a deconstructing faith. Yeah, the Bible also calls that apostasy, right? That of, of rejecting Jesus Christ and walking away from, it, okay? Uh, we can sugarcoat it, but that's what we're talking about here. And so we want to speak against that. And tell people that, you know what, maybe God is doing other things that you can't see in the midst of your struggles. So then, so that's the second one. The, the, the first, the religious leaders. The second one is, is the Jewish people. And then the third one is obvious, and he's the biggest character in the passage, and that is Judas. Judas is the betrayer. Judas is another difficult case, man, to wrap our heads around. Because think about it, Judas, Judas walked with Jesus for three years. He hung out with him. He ate every meal. He heard the teaching. He saw the miracles. He participated in the ministry. So when we read those passages about um, the disciples going out and preaching the gospel and casting out demons in the name of Jesus, it doesn't then say all the disciples came back and were like, Man, it was really great, Jesus. We cast out all these demons in your name, except for Judas. I don't know why. Judas, Judas couldn't seem to do it like everybody else does. That's not what happened, right? Judas was practicing the ministry, doing these incredible things, preaching the truth, just like all the other disciples were. In a sense, and again, this is the, the crazy thing to wrap our heads around, Judas demonstrates something that is even more frightening to us than the other two instances. And that is the fact that we can betray Jesus while standing right next to him. That we can betray Jesus even when we're serving him on a regular basis. Now again, obviously verse 3 
kind of complicates the issue a little bit, or certainly does in our heads. Verse 3 says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was, a, who was of the number of the twelve. Right? So immediately we go, man, well, what does that mean? Right? Uh, what does it mean that Satan entered into him? And then that is out of that is how he goes and, and acts and betrays. Well, uh, some people would probably come to this and go, you know, poor Judas, he never had a chance because he was possessed by Satan in some way. And so he wasn't doing these things of his own free will. He was doing them because Satan was making him. But I don't think that matches how we understand the scriptures. It doesn't, that's not the picture that we have in the scriptures of how these things work out. It's probably closer to the truth to say that Judas had long ago opened the door to Satan coming in and working in his life through his own unrepentance and his own secret sin. So the Gospel of John tells us, it says, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Okay? Previous to this, right, somewhere along those three years, as Judas is working side by side with Jesus, the devil had already put it into his heart to betray him. Then when we look at this passage, it seems like the issue of money is almost an afterthought, right? So we read about the fact that that Judas goes to these these uh Religious leaders, it says, verse four, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And then they were glad and agreed to give him money. It's almost like the money came after. But Matthew's gospel seems to make it a little more blatant. When Judas asks the religious leaders, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? Moreover, we're told in various places in the scripture that Judas would steal money from the disciples' purse, right? Money would come in to help the disciples and Jesus do the ministry. And it said Judas was the one that held the purse and Judas would take money out of the purse for himself. Some have theorized that maybe Judas, again, it seems crazy that we would... that you would betray this person who you had seen do all these things, who you had to know was who he said he was, and that you would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. That seems crazy to us. And, and therefore, there's, there's lots of commentators who have tried to, man, come up with a reason why Judas might have done this that is not so blatantly ugly and sinful. And so sometimes they would say something like, well, Jesus, Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. Like Judas wanted Jesus to be this conquering king, but Jesus just standing by, you know, talking about peace and love and, you know, stuff like that. And so Judas basically was like, you know what, if I get the authorities to come and arrest him, you know, Peter's got a sword, um, we'll have our moment and Jesus will have to make a decision at that point. Then he'll set up this kingdom and we can start it. But here's the deal. That's all speculation. We don't see that in the scriptures anywhere. The, the obvious picture is that greed led Judas to betray Jesus. That's it. It's as simple and as sad as that, that he would sell the perfect son of God that he had spent three years with for 30 pieces of silver. That is a hard thing to fathom. But again, what has Jesus warned us about throughout the gospels? The deceitfulness of riches. 
that money lies to you. And the sad truth is this, man, people have sold out Jesus for a whole lot less. And they continue to today. So the warning to us is this, that Judas had lived in sin, been walking away from Christ in some way for some time. Even though he stood right next to him in ministry, he had been little by little distancing himself from Jesus. And we're in danger of doing the same. On the outside, everything can look fine. All the while on the inside, we have allowed sin to take us further than we ever meant to go. It ends up costing us more than we would have ever meant to spend. It ends up costing Judas not only his life, but his soul. So we kind of come to the end of this passage. Betrayal is a terrible sin. Right? Betrayal is not something I had a, I've got a buddy who I do accountability with. And a few years ago, he started asking me kind of out of nowhere. He said, Hey man, do you feel like in, in the questions of how I was doing spiritually and how I was whatever? He started asking me the question, Hey man, do you feel like you have been betrayed in any way? And I kind of thought that was a weird thing to pop up at. And I don't know where he got it from. I don't know what prompted him to say it. I don't know if he'd read something or seen something or whatever. He started asking me that question. And I started thinking about the fact of, man, um, what a big deal. And the answer was no. I, I haven't felt like I've been betrayed by anybody. But I thought about what a big deal that would be. Um, betrayal is a terrible sin. In some estimations, it's the worst sin. So probably many of you had to read the book Dante's Inferno when you were in high school, okay? And you know the story, or maybe you know the story of of uh, Dante and, and the poet Virgil. They descend into hell, and in, in, in Dante's picture of it, cell, hell has nine levels. And, and the further you descend, you go through these, things get worse and worse, and the sins get worse and worse as you go down. And when you get to the bottom, to the ninth level of hell, the worst level, the bottom of the pit, that is the place where betrayers go. And so there's three men sitting down there. There's other people in the periphery of that place, but there's three men sitting at the center of hell in that story. And they are Brutus and Cassius, who betrayed Julius Caesar and assassinated him. And the third one, of course, is Judas Iscariot. And so there are many people throughout the history of the church and many people who probably when they think of their own lives would say the worst thing that has ever happened to me is the betrayal of somebody in my life. Maybe a parent, maybe a child, maybe a friend, maybe a sibling. That's the greatest attack or hurt that anybody has ever given to you. All right. But here's something we need to remember. and We're going to come back to this in a few weeks. Biblically, betrayal is nothing like an unforgivable sin, okay? Dante may see it as sort of the worst thing that could ever take place, but Jesus doesn't seem to. Jesus does not see betrayal as something that cannot be forgiven. And the main picture that we have of that is the rest of the disciples. Because as awful as Judas's betrayal is, at a level... Every single one of the other disciples, all 11 of them, 
betrayed Jesus Christ that night in Gethsemane. And then Peter, the story that we're probably most familiar with, um, most notably, notably betrays him to a greater extent as he is standing outside the fortress trying to figure out what has happened to Jesus. And we'll get to that story, and that's why we're going to hold off. But here's the difference. Peter responds to his sin of betrayal in repentance. He acknowledges his wrong, and Christ restores him. Judas responds in despair and is lost. So again, we're going to touch back on those themes in a few weeks when we read about Peter's betrayal. So I don't want to dig too far into them right now. But, but taking the big picture as we close and submitting to Jesus means A, dropping our agendas. It even means sometimes that the thing that we think God wants us to do is actually us looking through the lens of our own self-interest, not through the lens of the word of God. Two, our expectations are going to be subverted sometimes. You want certain things out of your life. You want God to act in certain ways. You want certain things for your family. You want certain things for your life and things aren't going to happen that way. And lastly, we need to keep walking faithfully in the spirit, recognizing that just because we are in proximity to Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that we are being faithful. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are relationally, spiritually close to Jesus. Because we can walk with him, we can serve near him, we can be doing what he has told us to do in certain contexts and still living our lives for our own selves. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, I hope these things are warnings to us. They are warnings to me. As I read these passages this week and thought on these subjects, um, man, how easy would it be to be any of these people? The Pharisees, the Jews, Judas. They are the things that we struggle against every single day and the traps that are set for us every single day. So we're supposed to be on our guard. So let's pray that God would help us in that way, that he would strengthen us, that he would remove us from temptation, and that we would be able to um, walk faithfully with him no matter what comes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Good and gracious God, we, we thank you for your forgiveness in our betrayals. Father, there are any number of circumstances in which, um, in small ways, in larger ways, that we have betrayed uh, Jesus Christ. We have betrayed the faith. We have lived in a way where we have walked from Jesus, where we have been scared to speak up, where we have placed our own desires and wants above um, the things of God where we have 
um, God resented and been grudging over the fact that that we have not gotten the things that we wanted uh, out of life. God, we have let our own petty greeds and lusts and hatreds and insecurities be an agent of betrayal in our own hearts. And so, Father, we ask um, that you would purge us from those things. God, that you would open our eyes to the dangers that are around us when it comes to this. God, we live in an era that we call deconstructing of the faith, God, but it is an era of betrayal. It is an era of apostasy. It is an era where people are in mass walking away from Jesus Christ for the very reasons that we have said, because he doesn't fit their agendas, because he doesn't do and say and teach and demand the things that they want to, the ways that they want to live their lives. God, help us to not live in that way. Help us to surrender everything to Jesus. Help Jesus to be our all. Help Jesus to be our life. And God, as uh, things happen and the world turns and and events take place and, and God, life happens to us, God, that you would keep us close to yourself. And that, um, again, like Peter, when they were at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to leave me too? Peter replied, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. God, help us to have that kind of faith, that kind of heart uh, that keeps us um, united to Jesus Christ in all circumstances. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Two things I forgot. I should have said them at the very beginning of service, and I didn't. Um, so one, tonight is the not last night that we are taking up money for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so if you would like to give and you haven't yet, um, this will be your last night for us to do that. So you can grab one of those red envelopes out there and, and put your donation in there. Or you can really just bring it up here, and I'll go ahead and just put it straight into the to the envelope that we've got the, the Lottie Moon stuff in. So, But that's tonight's the last night for that. So um, if you haven't given yet and you want to, make sure you do that before you leave. Um, two, uh, I mentioned it last week. We are, we are looking to get, uh, another small group going. And so if you are currently not involved in a small group, but you would like to be, um, we're shooting for it to be a weeknight small group. So it'll probably be on Monday night, Tuesday night or Wednesday night. Um, if it ends up being on Monday, it'll, it'll, uh, be off one night a month for, for men's meeting and stuff like that. But if it's Tuesday or Thursday, then, then it'll be good. So, but if that's something you're interested in, if you're like, yeah, I've not been in one or I have been in one and I want to get back in one or whatever. And, and a certain night would be a better option. Like you're like, I could do it on a Thursday, but not on a Tuesday or something. Would you text me that? Just send me a text and say, Hey, Ash, we're potentially interested, but I, I don't, it would have to be on this night or, or any of those nights would be fine. Okay. Sound good? Um, other than that, hope you have a great week. Um, stay dry and warm and all of the things. Um, and here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.